Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, you're going to suffer and Satan is the one who's behind it. He is roaring. He's going to persecute you in order to intimidate you. Satan is always behind the persecution of Christians. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Is persecution a normal part of the Christian life? Should you expect to be attacked in this way? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part 11 of Learning to Use God's Armor. So far in our series in Ephesians chapter 6, we've looked at the first strategy that Satan uses against believers, his attack on the Word of God. Today, Tom will begin to look at the second main tactic Satan uses, intimidation through fear and persecution. And while you may not be experiencing this particular type of attack right now, other believers across the globe have and are suffering immense persecution. This is one of Satan's frequent tactics for believers. But be encouraged. You can be equipped to stand firm against the devil's wiles. How can you become fully equipped? Well, keep that in mind and let's join Tom Pennington for more on The Word Unleashed. We live in a world that is absolutely filled with technology. Frankly, it's hard to keep up. But for most of us, we have and use computers. And if you have a computer, you probably have software installed on your computer whose sole function is to protect your information from external threats. We call those external threats viruses. The vandals who are so creative at producing these viruses are also very creative at how they deliver this sort of malicious software to our computers. One of the ways they deliver it is through what is called a Trojan horse. Essentially, they illegally plant this virus that they've made into an otherwise harmless computer program or software, and then when that harmless program is activated, suddenly the virus begins to do its terrible work and to destroy your information. Do you know why we call that kind of virus a Trojan horse? You know where that comes from? It's because of a story that was told by the ancient poet Virgil in his classic Latin epic poem, The Aeneid. You may be familiar with the story, if not the poem, certainly the story. The Greeks had attacked the city of Troy and actually laid siege to it during what was called the Trojan War. They laid siege to the city for some ten years The inhabitants of Troy were locked within the confines of their city, surrounded by the Greek army. But the city of Troy never fell. One of the leaders of the Greeks came up with an ingenious idea. And so in three days' time, the Greek army built this huge wooden horse. They built it to resemble a horse because a horse was the symbol of the city of Troy. After they'd completed this mammoth wooden horse on wheels, the entire Greek army abandoned all of the positions that they had taken for some 10 years around the city of Troy. They got in their ships and they sailed away. 
But they left this huge wooden horse, and they left one soldier whom they supposedly abandoned there to tell the citizens of Troy that the Greeks had given up on their siege and that they were going home. The soldier who was left convinced the Trojans that the Greeks were gone and that he alone was left. He told them that the huge horse that had been made and left was in fact a gift to the goddess Athena. Why? Because the Greeks said we desecrated her temple while we were here and we want to ensure a safe voyage home and so we built this as sort of an offering, a peace offering if you will, to the goddess Athena so that we can get home safely. If you're sitting there a little suspect of this story, so were the citizens of Troy. A couple of them spoke up and said this might be a Greek plot. In fact, one of them uttered something similar to the famous line from Virgil's poem, I fear Greeks, even those bearing gifts. But the couple of dissenters were shouted down. And when the Trojans saw that the Greeks had in fact boarded their ships and were sailing away, they pulled this horse into their city as a kind of victory trophy. They had outlasted the Greeks. They had endured a 10-year siege, and now, finally, the war was over. That night, under the cover of darkness, the Greek army returned on all of their ships. And inside that huge horse was a hollowed-out area where the Greek commander had stationed a few of his elite troops. And during the night, inside the city walls, where they'd brought that horse as a kind of victory trophy, the soldiers emerged from that horse, opened the city gate, let the rest of the Greek army in, and the result was a decisive victory that ended the Trojan War after a 10-year unsuccessful siege. We still call anything intended to undermine or destroy from within a Trojan horse. I tell that story because what I want you to see today is that our committed enemy, Satan himself, routinely attacks our souls by means of a Trojan horse. The devil and his demons routinely set up external circumstances that are intended to awaken the enemy that resides within our souls, our flesh, as the Bible calls it. That part of us as believers that remains unredeemed, our fallenness, has its beachhead in our bodies which have not been redeemed. What Satan wants to do is expose us to this external bait that calls out to the enemy within our souls and gets us to sin, and ultimately, he wants to destroy us. If we're going to defend our souls against Satan's siege, we have to be alert to his strategies. We have to know his tactics. And that's what we're learning as we work our way through Ephesians chapter 6. I invite you to turn there with me again, Ephesians chapter 6, as we continue our now multi-year journey through this wonderful letter. We're looking at the paragraph that begins in verse 10 of chapter 6 and runs all the way down through verse 20. But right now, we're studying just the first part of that paragraph. Let me read it for you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. The theme of the entire paragraph that begins in verse 10 and runs to verse 20, we've discovered is that in this battle that is the Christian life, we can only stand firm in the strength of Christ and with the armor of God. In verse 11, Paul really gets to the heart of his concern. Notice, he says, he wants us to be able to stand firm against the devil's schemes. As we've discovered, the Greek word that's translated schemes there is the word from which we get the English word method. He's referring to Satan's strategies, Satan's tactics. And if we're going to stand firm against them, we have to know what they are in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. We have to know what they are. And so before we continue working our way through Ephesians 6, I've taken just a couple of weeks with you to sort of leave Ephesians 6 and to look throughout the Scripture at Satan's strategies, his tactics toward believers. I've summarized what the Bible teaches about this into three primary strategies. I've taken all of his varied approaches and sort of synthesized them into what I've called Satan's three primary strategies. Number one, he attacks the Word of God. He attacks the meaning of the Word of God. He attacks the truthfulness of the Word of God. He attacks our obedience to the Word of God. He brings in false prophets, as we saw last week, into the church in order to undermine our confidence in the Word of God, he attacks the Word of God. Number two, his second primary strategy is he intimidates with fear and persecution. And number three, he seduces with personal temptation. He seduces us with an endless stream of personal temptation. Now, I took two messages to sort of survey how much the Bible has to say about the first of those strategies, Satan's attack on the Word of God. And if you missed either of those studies, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them because they're foundational. But today, I want us to look at the other two primary strategies or tactics that Satan uses against us. The second main tactic he uses that I just shared with you a moment ago and we want to sort of look into in some detail is this. He intimidates us with fear and persecution. He intimidates us with fear and persecution. Now, let's just be honest that this strategy is not as common here in America as it is in other parts of our world or has been in other times in history. But it still does happen. And frankly, I'm afraid that it will become even more common even during the lifespan of some of the people sitting here in this room this morning. But it was certainly common in the first century. It's been common throughout church history and remains common all around the world today. Our brothers and sisters suffer immense fear and persecution. We live in a bubble here. 
our experience is the one that is uncommon. This is one of Satan's very familiar, frequent strategies toward believers. Let me show you in the New Testament how this works. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm sorry, I meant 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Now watch here. Paul writes this church that he planted, and he's writing back to them. It's really a new church at this point. And he says to them in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 2, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. He says, we were taken away, but I wanted to come back. Now watch verse 18. This is truly amazing. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. That is a remarkable statement. This is the Apostle Paul. This is a man of unbelievable personal power, granted him by the authority of Jesus Christ, one of the hand-picked representatives of Christ on earth. And yet he says, I wanted to come and minister to you, and Satan hindered us or prevented us. Satan didn't want Paul to minister in the church in Thessalonica. It's interesting, if you take the time to do it, to go through the New Testament epistles and then go through the letters to the churches in, the, in Revelation 2 and 3 and see how many times the New Testament says Satan is involved in attacking individual churches. It's really quite remarkable. Very few are unscathed by his attacks. Here, he didn't want Paul to minister into this church, and he prevented him from getting there. How? How did he prevent Paul from ministering in that church? Well, we, we don't know for sure, but likely it was related to what's described in the book of Acts. And I'm not going to, for time's sake, take you back there. But in Acts 17, the story is told of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. And while he was there, the city officials, because of a mob that was worked up by some those who were antagonistic to the gospel, the city officials demanded that a man named Jason, who was a member of that city, pledge... Uh, the word is actually bond. It's like he took out a bond. It would cost him personally if this happened. He pledged that Paul would not return to Thessalonica. It's very possible that it is that persecution and the result of it that is what prevented Paul. Perhaps through the court system, they tried to get that, that bond removed. They tried to get that restraint on Paul removed, a sort of restraining order, if you will, from the city of Thessalonica. And Paul saw Satan in that persecution. Satan intimidates, he persecutes so that he can get us in a point of weakness and undermine the gospel. Look at 1 Peter. Peter refers to this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He ends his letter, his first letter, with these words. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is prowling around. He's roaring, trying to find a Christian to devour. 
A lion is one of the four large members of the cat family that roars. They usually roar at night. It's such a powerful roar. They tell us the roar of a lion on an open plain can be heard for more than five miles. It's, it roars certainly to communicate, to announce its presence, but they tell us on occasion a lion roars to paralyze its victims with fear. I think that's what's going on here in 1 Peter 5. He roars in order to paralyze Christians with fear. And what is the roaring connected to? It's connected to suffering, to persecution. Look at verse 9. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You've suffered, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you, will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's talking to those Christians who are suffering, and he's saying that's Satan's roaring. He's trying to paralyze you with fear. Same thing happens in Revelation chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but when, when John addresses, our Lord addresses through John, the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2.10, he says to them, do not fear what you were about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, you're going to suffer and Satan is the one who's behind it. He is roaring. He's going to persecute you in order to intimidate you. Satan is always behind the persecution of Christians. In my lifetime, I've seen the tide change. Today, there is this increasing hostility that's mounted toward Christians right here in America and even in the religiously-based South and here in North Texas. There's this rising antagonism in our culture against Christians. Where does it come from? Well, I think it comes from an evolutionary culture that is predisposed against a creator and those who believe in one. I think it comes from a naturalistic culture that rejects the idea of a supernatural intervention in the world. I think it comes from a pagan culture that frankly resents anyone, including God, saying, that's sin, you can't do that. I think it stems from a pluralism, the sort of idea that we ought to equally value all faiths and all religions and to say anything negative is to sin. We live in a pluralistic culture that rejects the idea of exclusivity. One faith, one person, i.e. the Lord Jesus Christ, can't be the only one who's right. They're all right. I had a friendly discussion with a man in my office who stopped by this week, uh, seemed to have some interest in spiritual things, but he couldn't get over the idea of the exclusivity of the gospel. I told him that Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus didn't mind being exclusive. But we live in a pluralistic culture that preaches tolerance to the extent that to say anything negative about another religion is a hate crime. What I want you to see is this, that marginalizing of Christians, 
that increasing hostility toward us, those things are not accidents. They are not merely the result of human depravity. According to the New Testament, they are a result of a concerted, carefully orchestrated plot by none other than Satan himself. His ultimate desire in those things is to intimidate us by fear and persecution to keep our mouths shut about Christ and about the gospel, to keep our faith to ourselves. Because Satan knows our mission is to make disciples for Jesus Christ. He hates that agenda, and he can, he'll do whatever it takes to sabotage it. And so he will intimidate us by fear and persecution. He'll do it at a national level. He'll do it at a regional level. And guess what? He'll even do it at a personal level. In each of our lives, this kind of fear and intimidation comes into our lives in a variety of forms. Perhaps in your life, it comes from an unbelieving family member who ridicules you for your faith. Perhaps in your life, it comes from a boss or a coworker who resents what you stand for and is always trying to find a way to attack you and attack your faith. Maybe in your life and situation, it comes from a classmate or a professor or a teacher who delights in trying to make what you believe look foolish. Understand, whenever that happens, our struggle is not primarily against flesh and blood, but it's against Satan and his forces. He's trying to create fear. He's trying to intimidate you into silence. It's always been his plan. And it's every bit as effective today as ever. There's a third primary strategy that Satan uses against us. Not only does he attack the Word of God, not only does he intimidate us with fear and persecution, but thirdly, he seduces us with a relentless stream of personal temptation. He seduces us with a relentless stream of personal temptation. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time together today. This is one of Satan's most effective strategies, and he uses it everywhere and in all times. Not a single one of us has been exempt from this strategy of Satan. He is called twice in the New Testament, the tempter. In other words, he is characterized as a person who tempts who brings temptation into the lives of people. Now, there are some of our brothers and sisters who are charismatics who have turned this sort of on its head and caused us to reject it. There's a kind of charismatic theology that's sort of borrowed uh, unintentionally, unwittingly, from a comedian who's now dead, whose most famous character was a Bible-toting woman named Geraldine. And Geraldine used to joke about every sin and every mistake Geraldine made, the devil made me do it. That joke, unfortunately, has become an accurate description of how many Christians still see Satan's role. In their minds, not only is Satan behind everything from causing us to be unfaithful in our marriages, but to a bad hair day. And more than that, we are merely his hapless victims. He made me do it. I couldn't help myself. Now, 
rightly, evangelicals have rejected that false view that throws all the responsibility on Satan. And we have instead said we need to accept personal responsibility for our sin and temptation, and that's right. But I'm afraid we have overreacted. If you ask the typical non-charismatic Christian what lies behind the temptations he or she faces, you rarely will hear anything about Satan. In fact, let me ask you, what stands behind the temptations you face? If it weren't in the context of this message so that you knew the right answer somehow involved Satan, you probably wouldn't say Satan. But the Bible teaches that Satan is very much involved in the business of temptation on both a worldwide level and on, through his demons on a personal and individual level as well. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 11 of Learning to Use God's Armor. Join us next time for part 12 as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.